Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. At the last fireside, um, we were in Revelation 1 for our devotion, and this is, uh, you know, John on the Isle of Patmos, exiled by himself. We talked a lot about that, about how being exiled, sometimes that vision that the Lord wants to show us, it means removing all the distractions from us or removing us from the distractions, okay? And some of y'all, you're in that place of your life where you've been removed, um, like picked up, like the claw decides who will stay and who will go, and you've been dropped in somewhere else. Some of you, this church is the somewhere else you've been dropped in. And you're trying to figure out this whole new world. And uh, good luck. But uh, I just, um, I know that, you know, that can be a strange thing. But in that place, John received this climactic finale to the canon, um, the book of Revelation. And uh, in it, there are some really, um, I'll say, easily misinterpreted things. Um, we are for sure living in um, a time when people are turning to Revelation and, you know, attaching significance and meaning and, you know, all sorts of symbology to all sorts of different things. And um, a lot of it's really good and a lot of it is just straight trash. Um, and so you have, to, you have to really check this stuff with your spirit. You, you can't read a book like this without the Holy Spirit um, or it just becomes a sci-fi novel. You know what I'm saying? And so you really, you really have to let the Spirit of God bear witness um, and illuminate this as we read through it. And today, we're going to kind of pick up as a part two on John seeing Jesus. Um, and so I, I don't want to read just a ton of scripture, but I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to just give you what's happening here, okay? So John is there, and the Lord brings him into a vision, and he hears a voice. And I want to just, um, I want to begin reading in chapter 1, actually, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, and when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, the sun shining in its strength. Verse 17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Somebody say amen. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He comes out of chapter one and begins uh, Jesus and if you have a Bible with red letters, it's very clear that, you know, this is Christ talking. 
um, he goes on a seven-letter rampage um, to the seven churches. And I'm kind of bringing this before the Lord because I know we're getting into this first letter today. Um, but I have a feeling that the Lord wants us to stay here for a while. So in an effort to not call this a sermon series, we're going to call it a seven-letter rampage. All right? So the first one is to Ephesus. And just a little disclaimer on these seven churches. There's a, a couple different ways. You know, literally these are churches that were planted in um, metropolis-type cities, Ephesus, uh, a world-renowned city at the time. Um, these cities were well-known, known for different things, uh, different temples to different gods in the different cities, um, different nuances and different variables um, in the theology of the young churches of Jesus that had been planted there. But what I sense the Lord drawing my attention to as, we, uh, as I started to get into this was that, first of all, in the Bible, the number seven, we know that's like God's number, but the number seven really um, issues this idea of completion. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole. The seven parts make up a whole. And so when we see the number seven in Revelation, that is oftentimes what it's alluding to. It's not, sometimes it's a literal seven to seven specific things. Sometimes the seven things are a symbol of a whole. And so the seven churches, I felt the Lord say, turn your attention on how each church takes on um, a different focus and how those focuses uh, trickle down throughout history. And today, while there are many, many more than seven denominations or seven sects of Christian theology or whatever you want to, however you want to divvy that up ecumenically, um, I believe that these seven churches were sort of the, the forefathers of all the different theologies and belief systems that there are among the people of God today. So kind of like how within Adam and Eve, there was all the DNA to make up all the races. Um, I believe that in these seven churches existed the DNA and we can sort of trace our ancestry as a church and the problems and the blessings that go along with that ancestry, like, you know, just like you can as a human. There are things that you can say, yeah, I got my physique from my dad's side, you know. I got my, you know, quick wit from my mom's side or whatever it is. And then I also got my bad knees from somebody or I got my, you know, weak ankles or I got my, you know, whatever it is. Um, you get the point. So as we read through these seven letters and as we start with this first one, my challenge to you, especially in a melting pot like His Providence, this is one of my favorite things about this church, is that from row to row in this church, like if we go down the rows, it's a mixed bag. It's, I mean, you never know what you're going to get. You know what I'm saying? And I love that. And I think that while us not really hammering uh, doctrinal statements on our website or that sort of thing, I think that while that's been made some people nervous and kind of hold the church at arm's length, I think it's also sort of been an open door to people who have felt um, ostracized and isolated because of a specific burden or a specific passion that they have or some way that they're slowly still interpreting scripture because in all honesty, we should all still be allowing the Lord to show us what, what this book really means. 
the second we have that figured out, I fix my eyes on my theology. I don't need you anymore, God. I have bylaws and articles of inter... Yeah, anyway, you, you get it. So I want to just start reading in, um, in chapter 2 here. To the angel of the Lord, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. By the way, the angels... Um, when he says the seven stars, as Jesus sort of interprets this vision to John, he says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the churches themselves. And uh, the, so I want to talk about this for a second because I've heard it preached in the past that angel can also just mean messenger, right? That's literally what the Greek word translates as is messenger. And so a lot of times people will see this and they say that means the pastors of the seven churches. Um, usually it's pastors who like that interpretation. Um, but to be fair, like 99 out of 100 times, um, actually more, the, this word angelos, this word that we translate as angel um, and also means messenger, it is literally an angel from heaven, like a spiritual entity, uh, like an angel, you know, complete with halo and wings and none of that stuff. Okay, never mind. So that's different. That's, that's something else. So I just, uh, I, I want to, you know, again, I'm not going to challenge you. If you were raised thinking that this means pastor, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I'm going to say the weight of scripture points us to the idea that these are heavenly beings that were charged with the oversight of these churches. Okay. We don't talk a lot about angels here uh, because you know, in Pentecostal tradition, especially in recent decades, it's just been like angelology, demonology has been like super overemphasized. But this stuff is real, and it's important for us to understand that it, it, this is the sort of thing God would assign angels to do. Go, look in on this church, report back to me. How are they doing? What's going on there? You know, what do they need? Can you minister to them? So with that said, we're going to start with a letter to Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Okay, so first of all, every one of these letters, they have an introduction. Just like Paul's letters to the early church when he, he would have a little thing at the beginning and he would say, I, Paul, you know, brethren this, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, blah, blah, blah. Um, so Jesus is sort of, writing this letter and he says, kind of saying to you, before I get to what I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you who's saying it. But it's interesting that as he gives a little one or two liners to describe himself, and I love this, like this is Jesus describing himself. He's pulling from the vision John has each time. So to like one church, he says, uh, I, the Lord, the one with the, the, the two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. And, and to this one, he says, I'm the one who has the angels in my hands, the stars in my hand, and I walk among the lampstands. It's important. It's specific. And I dare say that part of the reason why we have so many different understandings of who the Lord is is because he has shown himself very differently to each one of us in the room. I remember Dave Andrade um, speaking a number of years ago, and you talked about how, like, in a dark room, if you walked up to somebody and, and you couldn't see them, but you reached out your hand and you felt their nose, 
you would go out and describe that nose to everybody about who it was in that room that you just got a hold of. And it would be the nose, the nose, and the two nostrils, and the flat top, and the big, and the, you know, this sort of thing. And, you know, and, uh, and then somebody else that goes in, they're a little shorter maybe, they get a hold of his hand. And they come out of the dark room, and they start describing God, right? But it's a palm, and it's a thumb, and there are four fingers, and each one has these joints, and it's a lot like our hand, actually. And the guy that felt the nose is like, nah, you got this all wrong. Dude's a nose, all right? I felt a nose. I know a nose when I feel one, okay? That was a nose. And I think that for us, sometimes the Lord shows himself to us in one way or another, and he puts a conviction on our heart in one way or another. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see um, a facet or an attribute or a certain thing about the Lord. And we get real wicked hung up on that and have a real hard time understanding that anyone else could have seen anything else. But as Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus, he says, Today and for you, for now, I am the one who holds the seven stars. That's what you need to know about me right now. I'm the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. I'm the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. A couple quick things before we move forward in this. Holding the seven stars, that word kratos that the word hold comes from, it doesn't just mean to hold in your hand. It means to have power over, and often it means to have taken power away from something else and hold it. So when Jesus says that he is holding in his hands the spiritual charge over the churches, over this church, he's reminding them of his centrality and authority. I'm the one. I hold it in my hand. I have control over this. I have power over this. Whatever else has ever had power in the past, I have taken that power back. In fact, right before this, he tells John, am I not the one who went and got the keys to Hades? To death. I hold it in my hand. This line, this introduction from Jesus emphasizes the authority and centrality that he has among the churches. But I'd also say this, when Jesus reveals himself as the one who is walking among the seven lampstands, the seven churches, or can we say the completion of the churches, the wholeness of the churches, when I read this, I get nervous because what it says to me is he's still moving. He's still moving. And whatever church has decided that they can pin him down, you're already losing. Whatever theology, whatever Christian um, background or heritage that you come from, whatever you think that you have painted Jesus in this corner, and this is Jesus, stay here. It's a lot easier to keep my eyes on you if you just stay put. I'm the one who walks among the seven lampstands. He's still moving among all the churches. Not some of them. Not just the Pentecostal ones who sing songs about him moving, right? I walk among all the seven lampstands with the authority over each one. 
I love the image of Jesus in this, in Revelation. It comes away from this like poor, helpless lamb that was led to the slaughter and slain. I think a lot of us, we stop there. It's almost like some of us, we leave Jesus on the cross. And some of us, when he gets off the cross, we feel so bad that we can't ever really get him exalted to the place where he is, okay? The one with all the authority, the one at the right hand of the Father. His authority is over the authority in the churches. Some of us, we come from backgrounds where the authority in your church is supreme. Maybe it's the guy with the collar and whatever he says, that's to be taken as equal with scripture. Or maybe it's not a collar, maybe it's just the guy with the title. And if he doesn't give us our blessing, if he doesn't say it's okay, and um, especially in this area, you know, there was, a, there was a move back in the 80s or something. I don't know. I was only in my 20s or 30s at the time. But um, back in the 80s, there was this move, this sort of shepherding movement where an unhealthy amount of authority was, was put in the hands of church leadership. And to be fair, in the 70s, on the, the sort of, the setting of the sun of the charismatic Catholic renewal, um, people had swung the other way away from the sort of governance and hierarchical system of Catholicism. And what they found is, is a mess because going from one extreme to the other just leaves you in another extreme. And so the shepherding movement of the 80s came back a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit too much to where it was saying like, okay, well, we won't buy this house unless our pastor says we can. And um, we won't, you know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll get married on the day they say we can get married and we'll, you know, we'll only do whatever they say we can do. We'll only go on the vacations they say we can take and that sort of thing. And, you know, we tried that here for 10 years and it just, it didn't take. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The point, the, the beautiful picture here to the church in Ephesus, and we're, as we jump into this, we're going to see why it is this way. But the beautiful thing here is that he is saying, whatever spiritual authorities I've put in place over the church, whether it's angels or pastors, if that's your interpretation, whatever, I still have authority over all of it. I still hold it all in my hands. Don't forget it. Okay, so here we go. I know your deeds, he says in verse two. For some of us, that's a good thing, and some of us, that's like, hmm, shoot, I wish he didn't. <laughs> I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. All right, let's talk about this for a second. First of all, Jesus is like the originator of the compliment sandwich, and we see it in, in the seven letter rampage. Um, he's kind of like, you know, it's always, it's always the punch in the stomach and the kiss on the lips with him. It's always that. You can't get away from it. And so for some of you who are just, you just love pain and punishment, get over the fact that he still has a kiss for you. Okay, 
For some of you that just want to make out with Jesus, like some of y'all, you need to realize there's also a spanking involved here. We're going to get to that in a second. But deeds, toil, and perseverance. I love that Jesus loves this. I love that he takes note of this in a way that is honorable to him because so often, especially like in our circle and concentric circles outward, we look at deeds, toil, and perseverance like they're a bad thing because for too long, they had always been skewed in this light that says we have to do these things to please him or we have to do these things to stay saved, right? Um, everybody in here has heard the faith without works is dead and, you know, if you want to go to heaven, you better get working or whatever. Um, that is not true. None of that is true, right? Uh, but at the same time, there is the, uh, the reality of a place for deeds, toil, and perseverance if it's not done so that God will be pleased, if it's just done to honor him, if it's just done out of our heart to desire to see his kingdom come and to see his will be done, to know what he loves and then to do it, I think it puts a smile on his face. I think he loves it. And we read here that the deeds, toil, and perseverance are not painted in a negative way. He's saying to this church, you've got the work part figured out, and it's an honor to God. You put false apostles to the test. And I want to talk about this line for a second, because the discerning of spirits often goes along with deeds, toil, and perseverance. It makes sense that these two things are married. And as I was asking the Lord, like, God... Show me what's going on in Ephesus. Like, what do we need to know? Because I, I do believe, I remember being at Zion, um, formerly, the Bible college formerly known as Zion. And, uh, and I remember Dean Gallagher. Uh, I remember Dean Gallagher saying to us, the greatest thing that you can ask for in Bible school is discernment. Do you remember that? He said that all the time. The greatest thing you can ask for is discernment. And I'm like, well, everybody's asking for a wife. You know what I'm saying? Like, but then I started to see who some of them married, and I'm like, I get why discernment is so important. Some of us are even still married, you know? Praise the Lord. Okay, so there's a reason why discerning of spirits goes along with deeds, toil, and perseverance. And it's because for folks, who, for folks who were logging the hours and putting in the hard work, the reason why their toil and deeds honored God is because it wasn't something they did. It was someone they were. What they did for the Lord was not about the action of it. It was not about the accomplishment or the, the checking the box. It was not about duty or an obligation. It was who they were. It was in their DNA. And that's actually what a, a lot of um, sort of like the undercurrent clashing that can happen among believers. When you have like works, people who are like works. Faith without works is dead. And people are like, yeah, but works without faith are just works. And so there's these two things because I think that in a way, some of us, we trace our ancestry a little bit differently. And what we have to learn from these folks who can work 
for the Lord in a healthy way and it not be toxic and their identity and salvation not be wrapped up in it is to take note of this fact that it's just an outflow of who they are. It's just them walking in their giftings. It's them walking as a son, as a daughter of God. And so I think, for, by the way, for anybody in here that's been shamed for that, I want to say that wasn't right. And if, those, if the deeds, toil, and perseverance are sourced in who you are and not what you feel like you have to do, it is an honor to the Lord. Okay? Good. I just want to make sure we clear that up. But when ministry is a thing you do instead of a person you are, you're more likely to accept someone else's thing they do and miss who they are. I'm going to say that one more time. When ministry, instead of the right way, when see, ministry needs to be who you are. And that's what I love about um, the, the folks that the Lord has handpicked and put on staff here because I look at them and their, I, their heart beats, it throbs, it aches. That doesn't mean that we don't all still do some stuff that we'd you know, rather not do sometimes. Um, but what it means is that it is an outflow. The ministry we do is an outflow of who we are. But if ministry is a degree you earn, a job you take, a position you hold, a department you head, whatever it is, if ministry is just something you do and it's not someone you are, then you're much more likely to not engage discernment when it comes to something someone else just does. And we will pay attention to what they do instead of who they really are. Hence all the epic character fails in the church today. Because we've been paying attention to someone's gifts. We've been paying attention to someone's abilities. We've been paying attention to what someone's able to accomplish, what they're able to grow, how they're able to communicate, or so on and so forth. And we totally miss who they are, which is what matters to the Lord. So if you're writing things down, just get this. Ministry should be a thing you are, not a thing you do. We don't, we don't operate in discernment if we don't operate in the deeds, toil, and, and perseverance. Those things are what drive us to know the difference between is this just a show somebody's putting on to impress people? Let me tell you something. The people who are here after hours, the people who are here around the clock, the people who are here behind the scenes, behind the curtains, behind the walls, I'm listening to those people because when their eyes are on Jesus and someone else crosses that path, you know, in and out, and it's like, mm, they're here, they're not. And there they go again. And they're coming back by again. And another thing. Or, hey, this person has been walking this path for a long time. Zach, pay attention to this person's life. Hey, Zach, have you noticed so-and-so? Have you seen where they're at, have you seen who they are? Oh yeah, isn't that the person that teaches the such and such? Yeah, 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 but Zach, have you seen who they are? Because it's amazing. Those are the people I'm listening to and our church is blessed with some incredible discerners. My wife's an incredible discerner. Um, and, and I think that when we're, when we're listening to the people who log the hours, 
who, who also have been given the insight into the spiritual things. We need to learn to take direction and receive guidance and counsel from folks like that because it helps us to, to really lock in the people in our lives who ought to be there, the ones who should be speaking to us, the ones who have the lives to back it up, the ones who have the marriage or the kids or the, or the commitment level or the sacrifice to back it up. And it's not just something they put on on Sunday mornings. Amen? Okay. So we got to keep going. But I'll say this. The more we discern, okay, like this church of Ephesus that's putting apostles to the test, the more we discern and the more we put to test, sometimes the more we think it's our job and our purpose to discern. And this is actually one of the greatest blessings of Ephesus was also one of its biggest downfalls. Because Jesus comes right off the heels of saying, hey, good job putting those false apostles to the test. And then he says this, but in verse four, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Doggone it. We were on a roll. Some of you guys like words of affirmation people, you're like, that's it, that's it, it's over, it's done. There's no, forget it, it's all done, there's nothing, I quit. But the more we discern, the more we think it's our job slash purpose to discern. And the more we think it's our job slash purpose to discern, the less we cling to our real purpose, which is to love him. You left your first love because you got so busy discerning. You got so busy making it your job to tell the difference between right and wrong. There's some deep stuff here. We're going to get to in a minute. I got to keep going. Oh my God, help us. I just love this. But I want, I want to um, challenge those of you in the room who, um, especially to the discerners, especially to the deeds, toil, and perseverers, Perseverancers, perseverers. I like that. Let's go with that. For those who are, are persevering, take note of the other, the other edge, the other side, the slippery slope of, okay, you don't just wake up one morning and leave your first love. This happens when your eyes go from here to hear. And, and the more that we start doing the work of the Lord and the more we start to make the purpose of our lives to be deciding what's right and what's wrong, the more we forget who we really are and what our purpose really is. Come back to your first love. So I'm just going to say, I'm going to read this next line. He says this, right? Therefore, verse five, there is a therefore, okay? Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. If you're writing things down, write this down. Remember, repent, return. Remember, repent, return. Remember where you came from. Repent, which literally means to do a 180, right? Everybody knows that. You've all heard that message at Bible camp or something. It literally means to do an about face in the complete polar opposite thing, Okay? and return to the deeds you did before. I, um, 
<laughs> I love, I love, and I hate, I hate it. I hate how easy it is to stop somewhere else on this path before we actually make it back to our first love. And isn't it interesting that what he's calling us to is how to love, return to the deeds you did before. Interesting. This is not just a posture of the heart. No matter how many sermons you've heard me preach that it was. It's not just a posture of the heart. It's the deeds that prove that posture. It's the deeds that iterate that posture. You left your first love. Therefore, remember where you came from. Some of y'all in this room are really good rememberers. In fact, I would dare say that it is the opposite of what everybody thinks, that when you get old, your memory starts to fade. No, 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 not at this church. No. <laughs> See, the older people are at this church, the more they remember how it used to be. Okay? The former glory. Zach, worship was so good today. It was almost as good as it was in 1973 when Martin Luther wrote the famed hymn. It was almost as good when I first cracked the spine on that hymn book. You're so good at remembering. And you remember where the glory was. But have you taken anybody there? Have you ever gotten yourself back there? Why are you relying on somebody else to do it? Be it man or angels, we're all in the hand of God. So, so it comes down to this matter of you can't stop at remembering. If we believe that the glory is going to be greater, it means that while we're remembering the things of the past, we've got to be willing to repent from whatever it has been that has taken us away from those things. And then we have to return. Get how repenting doesn't equal returning? Well, Zach, how can you prove that? Because how many times have you repented from the same doggone thing? I repent, I repent, I repent, I repent. <laughs> Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit. No, I'm getting dizzy up here now. We've repented so many times, but we haven't returned to anything. Repent, return. Remember, repent, return. Return to the deeds or else, and there is an or else, or else the Lord will remove the lampstand. He says it right here. He says, or else I'm coming to you and not in a good way and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. We see this trickle down into the local churches of today, okay? This same promise, threat, whatever you want to call it, we see it trickle down from the statement made to the church at Ephesus all the way down to churches today that are refusing to return back to a deeds, toil, perseverance philosophy that honors God the testing of apostles without making it their sole purpose in life, when there is a, a reluctance or a refusal to return back to the heart of God from these things, back to our first love, the Lord 
removes the lampstand. Well, Zach, that church is still open. I didn't say the church isn't open. I said their doggone light's out. The light is out. And you're not attracting anything anymore. And that tragically describes so many churches. It's no longer the fire that draws people in. It's something else. Some churches have done really well with marketing strategies and vision statements and whatever else. And just like it works in corporate America for a consumer-minded church, we, we will be drawn to those things. We will buy into those things. But that's not a church. It's a church when there's a lampstand. It's a church when there's a fire in it, okay? And then the last thing here, I'm just going to wrap this up quickly. Yet, here comes the other, the bun of the compliment sandwich, okay? The other side, here it comes. He said, yet, mm, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is cool, okay? Um, I love this. I, Jesus is just so practical. You know that saying, my enemy's enemy is my friend? Jesus is like, we both hate this. Like, let's talk, you know? There might be some chemistry here. Like, let's see what happens, you know? You hate the Nicolaitans. I hate the Nicolaitans. If you're writing things down, write this down. Loving what God loves is a lot easier than hating what he hates. Loving what God loves is a lot easier than hating what he hates. Do we hate what God hates? Some of us, it's like we love what God loves and then we decide what to hate. I'm going to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I'm going to hate gays and liberals and, you know, that's all I can think of. <laughs> but everybody's got their own personal list. And you're wrong. You're dead wrong. You're, you're, you're risk of losing your lampstand wrong. If we don't learn to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Who are the Nicolaitans? In, in the, another letter, he, he talks about him again. And the Nicolaitans were the ones um, who presented a stumbling block to Israel by way of Balaam, if you remember back in Numbers, the story of Balaam and Balak, and a curse was sent to be cast, and they had hired Balak the sorcerer, and that's the story of where um, the donkey talks. Um, but it's a stumbling block, but there's, there's this piece of, you know, what's, what's typically most commentators understand to be like, you've caused Israel to... to commit adultery and fornication and go, going back into some sins of the world that they are in. But I want to draw your attention to the word Nicolation because it comes from some Greek roots um, that mean to have power over the people. Okay. And there is sort of a subsect of us who read this warning of the Nicolations, this thing God hates. And we, um, And we miss the fact that what God really hates is when people rise up and take power over other people, especially 
in reference to the church. Do you see why to the, to the church of Ephesus, he's saying, we're on the same page. I'm the one that walks among the lampstands with the seven stars in my hand. I've taken back the power from the Nicolaitans. I've taken back the yeah. power yeah. from the ones who lorded over the people. I have the power and I hold it in my hand. And whatever you've been afraid of and whatever you've been worried about, see, you thought you were on your own in this, but I don't like this either. In fact, I hate it. This hierarchy that we do this nonsense, we build these systems and we do it in the name of God and in the name of scripture and in the name of whatever else, but really it's Satan that wants us believing that as sons and daughters of God, we can't just go to the Father, that we exist in some sort of ladder that we have to climb. There was a ladder, but Jesus came all the way down it. Okay? Do we hate what God hates? God does hate stuff. Well, we never talk about that, Zach. God hates corruption of justice. God hates broken covenants. God hates pride. God hates it. When we distract each other and redirect each other away from who we are in him. Let's stand to our feet because I want to read this last part. These letters all end with sort of like an outro and it's, it's so cool because he addresses a group of people in the church and he says it like this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. If you could imagine this letter being read in front of a group of people and now saying to the overcomers in the room, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Before I let you go, I wanna talk about that tree for a second. Y'all know there were two trees that were noted in the garden, right? Not just one. We only talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A tree that once it was eaten of, all innocence was lost and forever mankind was tainted by what? The knowledge of good and evil. The very thing that distracted the church at Ephesus from their first love. The discerning of good and evil. The deciding what was good and what was bad. And I, and I, again, the Lord gives us his Holy Spirit so that we're not discerning based on logic or, or you know, reason, but we are discerning by his spirit because he wants us to know the difference. But saints, we think that sometimes maturity is, is moving into um, this place of greater dividing good and evil. God doesn't need any help dividing good and evil. 
What he's looking for is for someone who would walk back into the garden, back into his presence, and eat of the tree that Adam and Eve were to be sustained by forever and ever and ever. The tree of life. To him who overcomes this, overcomes what? Overcomes this mindset that we're bogged down, that our deeds, our toil, and our perseverance has to forever and always orbit around this idea of like, if I don't figure this out, who's gonna do it? If, if I'm not standing at the gate and watching and making sure that nothing bad enters and this and that, don't do that in your flesh. Let the Holy Spirit do it through you. Because when you overcome that distraction, when you overcome the thing that, listen, isn't it crazy to think that the enemy loves when we get distracted by discerning? Because when we're distracted by discerning, let me show you how this goes. You're only a few steps away from just whittling yourself down to like a half a dozen people around a campfire singing kumbaya and passing a peace pipe and saying, this is the remnant. This is all that's left. Because I've discerned everyone else out of here. What a dangerous place to be in. Doesn't Jesus say, let the wheat and the chaff grow up together? Because discernment only goes so far for a reason. This is not the tree that sustains us. Zach, what's going to happen if, if the wrong person gets in the wrong place and the whatever? Let me tell you something. The seven stars of the seven churches are already in the right place. And for those of us who have our eyes fixed on our first love, we're already in the right place. To the overcomers in the room. To the overcomers in the room. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life. The tree of life. That, that human nature in us, we are so hung up on death that we have to constantly be deciding what's going to die. That's not even our call to make. Who are we? This church that had developed so much identity around the knowledge of good and evil is called back to its innocence. Called back to a place that's better than knowing the difference. A place of life. 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 So Father, we speak over your bride this morning. And we say, come alive. Come alive. Lord, for those in the room who have felt the, the weight and the oppression of, of taking it too far, the, this deciding and constantly living in fear over what's, what's evil and what's good in their life. Father, I pray that your spirit would rise up within them. Take the wheel of that thing, God, so that, so that our hearts can return back to our first love. God, forgive us when we've fallen in love with being the ones to decide what stays and what goes and what's wheat and what's chaff and the, and the sheep and the goats and the whatever else. God, forgive us, Lord. It, it's become a distraction. Lord, we come back to the tree of life this morning. 
We come back to the resurrection life in Jesus Christ, a fruit that when we eat, when we sit down at that table and we break bread with him, we live forever. Lord, we trust you with the deciding. We trust you with the, with the, with the separation that needs to take place. And God, I pray that you would start with us, with this initial thing of remembering, remembering how we were used when we were innocent, remembering how our lives reflected your glory, even in the midst of our mistakes, when we weren't so hung up on identifying them. Lord, bring us back to life. We thank you for that life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have the best day ever. We'll see you next week. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.